We come to the second half of the seven years of tribulation this evening. Make sure I'm still rolling here on my audio. In consistency with Jesus' teachings on the events of Matthew 24, we, we named the first half of the tribulation the beginning of sorrows. Now, the last two weeks, we discussed the events surrounding the midpoint of the tribulation. Recall what those events were. We talked about the death of the two witnesses after having preached the gospel for the first three and a half years. We talked about Satan being cast out of heaven. Last week, we, st- we spoke about the abomination of desolation Excuse me, and uh, the rise of Antichrist. We introduced ourselves to four world powers and two major players in these last days. The Western Empire, the Northern Confederacy, the Southern Kingdom, and the Eastern Confederacy are those final world powers. And within the Western world, we saw two beasts. The first beast being uh, Antichrist and a nation led by him, the Western world and the second beast being an economic and religious system led by one called the false prophet. And we surmise that though certainly Antichrist will come out of the Gentile world, it is quite possible that this false prophet will come out of Israel, the Jewish world, and rise and seek to get uh, those in the nations as well as in Israel to worship the first beast, that being Antichrist as he sets himself up above God as a blasphemer of God. Now, we also introduced the beginning of what, what um, we oftentimes, when we think of the Battle of Armageddon, we think of that final event, that final day, that final week, whatever it might be, um, when the kingdoms come together in the Valley of Megiddo and Jesus Christ returns. But, but it's probably better that we think of Armageddon more as a campaign, as an entire war that likely spans the entire breadth of that three-and-a-half-year period, uh, that second three-and-a-half years known as the Great Tribulation. And we, as we look at the timetable of how things uh, seem to be going, uh, I presented to you last week that war between the King of the North when he will be destroyed by the Lord, and Antichrist will use that circumstance to raise up into power. And that is probably the point where this campaign begins. The king of the south will be subdued. The king of the north uh, has been destroyed. Of course, not the entire northern region, however. And, and the kings of the east are still um, in the east. And there, there's still a great deal of war that will happen over these final three and a half years. So let's call it the campaign of Armageddon. And it's the events between the milestones of, let's say this way, the abomination of desolation and the second coming, the the true second advent of the Lord, where he physically returns to the earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that we'll be considering as we consider the second half of the tribulation. I intend to get through all of it tonight, and next week we we will consider that event known as the second advent the return of the Lord, and that will be uh, such an exciting thing to, to think about and talk about this evening, uh, next, next week. But for this evening, you're in Matthew 24. Let's read verses 21 through 28. I've put the first two verses on the screen. The other ones you'll need your Bible for. 
Jesus Christ speaking, and he says, "As uh, let's let's work back to um, verse fifteen for context." When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, and let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, but pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now we um, bring ourselves to the events of the second half. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. The great tribulation of these days is the pinnacle of God's wrath upon the earth for man's pride and his rebellion. And the description of this wrath uh, we see beginning in Revelation 14. And I would encourage you, now that we've looked at the Matthew 24 account, uh, to turn over with me to Revelation 14, where we will consider the events of the second half of the tribulation as presented in Revelation. This is indeed a survey course, as it were. A survey sermon series. It's not, we're not walking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. So I have and will continue to skip various sections. Um, at some point, I will preach verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And when I do so, um, we'll look forward to, to the, the verse by verse exposition. But in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, uh, the scripture says this And I looked and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the, th on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. This is the overview of the wrath of God as it is pictured in this time. It's graphic, is it not? It's a graphic picture of the wrath of God, the idea that God is, He casts His sickle into the earth and He reaps the unbelieving world and He casts it into the winepress of His wrath. And of course, 
a wine press was where you put grapes in and you pressed them, you squeezed them, and out would come the juice from the grapes which would be used to make wine. And John said as he looked at the earth being thrown into the wine press of God's wrath, he saw blood pouring out of that wine press as God's wrath destroyed the earth and literally uh, the inhabitants of the earth are dying in, in, in droves in this time. That is the mindset that we need to have as we seek to understand God's wrath in this time. And throughout um, Revelation 15 and following, we see, we've seen, recall, the seals broken. And with each seal broken, there was a judgment and then the trumpets that blew, and with each trumpet that blew, there was a judgment. And so we've seen the seals, we've seen the trumpets, and now we get to what the, what the King James says are the vials, V-I-A-L-S, or bowls. The bowls or the vials of, of judgment that will be poured out. And this is the very height, the epitome of the judgment of God upon uh, the, the earth and upon mankind. And we'll, we'll begin looking at those judgments in chapter 15. The first vial is opened, the Scriptures tell us. And um, as, as we look into, well, in verse 16, or excuse me, in chapter 16, as we look into chapter 15, sorry, I just got lost in my notes a little bit. Have the wrong label. Okay, uh, in chapter 15, the scriptures say, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that have gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over his, uh, the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And so chapter 15 is the declaration of the judgment, uh, the declaration of God's justice and God's righteousness in the midst of judgment. Now please look with me in chapter 16 as we see each of these vials poured out. Verse six, chapter 16, verse 1 says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So the first vial of God's wrath or bowl of God's wrath are terrible sores that will come upon men, but not all men and women, only those who have taken the mark of the beast, only those who have worshipped his image. We know that there will be an image of the beast that will be erected and, and the false prophet will cause the world to worship the image of the beast. And as we consider this circumstance, 
this image um, will, will be a great compulsion for the earth and, and um, those, the unbelieving in the earth as they take his mark, as they take his name, also to worship. And the scriptures do clearly state that those who take his mark um, are a part of this judgment. We'll see later on that taking the mark is often um, cited synonymously with unbelievers. I was asked a question last uh, week, actually, in, in uh, outside of the church context, where somebody asked me, uh, if a person takes the mark of the beast, does that mean that they can't get saved? They were listening to a, a prominent a conservative teacher today, and he was saying that that's not necessarily the case, that a person could take the mark and then perhaps get saved at a later date. However, the reason why that's a little bit difficult to, to plainly state is because when we look further in the book of Revelation, the action of taking the mark is equated with rejecting Jesus Christ. And so it's very difficult to, to come out and say, well, yes, they, it's, it's a possibility that they could still um, be saved in light of how the Scriptures present those that took the mark. Now, we don't have to worry about that because we won't be there. So this is, this is theoretical for us. However, if somebody asks you that question, we'll look at some verses this evening and next week that will help lend us to the understanding that it appears that once a person takes the mark, they've made their choice. They, they, uh, it, it's, it's not that they perhaps couldn't get saved, but that they probably won't want to be interested. They've, they've made their choice. They've chosen their side. They've stepped to one side or the other of the line, and that's where they will remain. And so this plague will only affect those who have taken the mark, those who have worshipped his image. In chapter 14, verse 13, an angel cried, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, indicating that there will be a remnant still on the earth that had not taken the mark, However, there will be a large contingency of those in the world who have taken the mark. And they will be separated here. They will be distinguished in this plague. Only those who have taken the mark will have the sores upon them. Second, we'll see that the plagues upon the earth are only affecting, as, as um, we, we um, consider here, the unrighteous. Recall that we presented two distinct but interrelated purposes for the seven years of tribulation. The first purpose of the seven years of tribulation was to chasten Israel back to God. We've seen that through the abomination of desolation. At this point in the tribulation, the second half, Israel has fleed for their lives. They're hiding in the wilderness. They are, are, are in a place of tremendous persecution. They realize that Antichrist is not their Messiah. They realize that they are false Christs. And they are beginning to recognize that Jesus Christ is and was their Messiah. They're, they're coming to see that the chastening is bringing them to a place of faith. However, the second purpose for the tribulation is to judge the unbelieving world. God, at this point, we are in what we call the age of grace. And I believe that age of grace is not simply that God has extended His grace through Jesus Christ to be saved, but I believe it's also talking about a time of long-suffering where God is not pouring out His wrath upon the earth, where God is still and yet waiting, but there's coming a day when, God, when, when the, the stops will be opened 
The bottle will be uncorked. And all of God's wrath will pour out. And so the sores will be upon men who have taken the mark in 16 verse 2. In chapter 16 verse 3, we see the second judgment. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul died in the sea. This is reminiscent of the second trumpet. When the second trumpet sounded in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, one-third of the sea was turned to blood and one-third of the creatures in the sea were killed. The fact that we now see the whole sea becoming blood again helps us. It puts some pieces together for us as to what we're understanding in this interpretation. Do you recall back when we were talking about the trumpets? I said there was a certain um, vein of interpretation because we know that in prophecy, oftentimes, the Scriptures paint the sea as being the Gentile world and the land as being um, Israel or Canaan or Palestine. And so that's why we understand because the, the first beast comes out of the sea and the second beast comes out of the land. We believe the first beast will come out of the Gentile world, Antichrist, and the second beast will come out of Israel. However, many have taken that interpretation to these, these plagues and these, these judgments as well to say that in Revelation 8.8, when one-third of the sea is turned to blood and one-third of the creatures of the sea are destroyed, that one-third of the earth's population will be killed. And I had mentioned to you that I don't, I don't really feel comfortable with that. And this is one of the reasons why. Because in this judgment, the second vial, every creature in the sea dies. The entire sea is turned to blood. And the fact of the matter is, if this was a, a picture of the Gentile world, then the judgment's over. Everyone's dead. So we, we can presume here that the judgments are speaking of a literal sea, literal uh, um, creatures that live in the sea here, not a metaphorical or a prophetic picture of the Gentile world. Second, we see a heightening of a previous sign. And this is very important. That God is now heightening those signs. Recall the other ones were the beginning of sorrows, the warning signs of that which is to come. Now this is the full outpouring of God's wrath, the greatest um, signs, the greatest judgments that will be poured out upon man. And I'd like you to consider for a moment just how devastating this would be. When we talk about the sea, we're thinking of salt water applications, not necessarily the fresh water. We'll see that in a, in a later judgment. But as we think of salt water, imagine if all of the seas and oceans turned to blood and everything in them died. Imagine what kind of an impact that would have, not even just the, the awful nastiness of all of these dead things floating in a sea of blood and how smelly it would be and how awful it would be, but, but, but how many cultures live off of fish? When I went to China, uh, we were in that island just south of China, Hainan. And islands tend to be pretty fish heavy. That's one of their main means by which they live. But it's not just islands, it's all coastal regions. Imagine what would happen if all of the fish of the sea, all living things in the sea, die. Imagine what kind of a strain that would put upon resources how difficult it would be for the world. 
even though at this point the population is considerably less than it will be at the beginning of the tribulation. So this is the circumstances they find themselves in. The third judgment is found in verses 4 through 7. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water. Here's the fresh waters. And they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. The rivers and springs, the drinking water, the fresh water becomes blood. And the message of that judgment is that this is, this is justice for the martyrs and the saints. For thousands of years, these wicked men have shed the blood. We might say it metaphorically, they have drank the blood of the saints. We'll, we'll see that picture a little bit later when we talk about the false church, the harlot church, that they've drunk the blood of the martyrs and the saints. And as we consider this, the angel says, this is justice, Lord. You're worthy. They've destroyed the saints and the martyrs. Now let them drink blood. Such a terrible time upon the earth. The fourth judgment found in chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, the fourth vial. Scriptures say, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which hath power over these plagues and they repented not to give Him glory. In the, the fourth vial, the, the heat of the sun is increased and the men of the earth are scorched. I'd imagine they'd be pretty thirsty. What do they have to drink at this point? It's not going to be a... It's going to be a very difficult time. And the question becomes, at this point, will they repent? Will they see the error of their ways? Will they take what they are seeing to heart? They will not. Verse 9 says that in the midst of the scorching heat, they blaspheme the name of God. And they repent not to give Him glory. They know it's God but they refuse to repent. They blaspheme His name. They look up to God in abject defiance as God pours out His wrath upon them. The unbelieving world simply continues to do what it's always done. It stares God in the face and blasphemes Him. And is that not the world we live in? Even today, much less on the day when God pours out His wrath. The fifth vial is poured out and the Scriptures tell us in verses 10 and 11 that this vial is poured upon the seat of the beast. That would be Antichrist. And his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of the, their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So this particular plague is only upon the kingdom of Antichrist. Remember, that will not be the whole earth. As much as we, we consider the idea of a one-world government, Antichrist will never actually have control over... He, he, he will exercise dominion. In other words, he will be the most powerful man in the world. 
there will be none that can oppose him. But that doesn't mean that there will not be other places. We haven't even come in the Scriptures yet to the kings of the east. The king of the north has been destroyed by the Lord. The king of the south has been subdued. But the kings of the east are still out there. The whole world is not necessarily completely uh, subject to him. And so the kingdom of Antichrist, there will be darkness. And, and the kind of darkness that you can feel is the idea here. That they would, uh, as the scriptures say, um, that they would gnaw on their tongues for pain. That, that kind of uh, darkness and loneliness and solitude that you can feel that, that, that the, the human body can't handle because it's so dark. It can't utilize its senses properly. It, it causes, uh, it almost causes your, your mind to just become disoriented and confused and miserable. This was a punishment many times in history that a person would be locked in solitary confinement in a dark room for a number of days without any light or with just the smallest sliver of light. And as they were in that darkness, that deep darkness for an extended period of time, they would almost lose their minds because of the darkness. And not only that, but the Scriptures say they still have the sores and the pain of the sores. They are miserable. And verse 11 says, but they repent not of their deeds. The sixth vial is poured out in chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. The Scriptures say the sixth vial was poured uh, uh, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So the sixth vial is poured out and the river Euphrates is diverted. It's dried up. The river Euphrates is characteristically understood to be the river that divides the Orient from the Middle East. It divides those kingdoms. You have to get over that great river somehow and in some way. And the river will be diverted, dried up. To some degree, it will stop flowing, making way for the kings of the east to have a clear shot to get into Israel, to invade the Western world, to come against the Western world, which is God's plan for all of the world. He desires to have meet in that place of Armageddon, Megiddo, where He can judge the world in righteousness. Verse 14 also states that three devils come out of this unholy trinity that we spoke of last week. We have Satan, the dragon. We have the beast, Antichrist, and the second beast, the false prophet. And John says he sees a devil come out of each one of them, jumping out like a frog and going to the kings of the world to lay it upon their hearts to come to Israel, to come to this central location where the Lord can judge them. So the devils will, will fill the hearts of these kings to bring them to the place of the battle of the day of God Almighty. And that is the scenario. 
Beginning at the midpoint of the tribulation, nations begin to war one against another. Within this time, the king of the south is subdued by Antichrist. The king of the north is destroyed by the Lord. And now, following the terrible wrath which is poured out upon the earth, the kings of the east travel across the Euphrates to challenge the authority of Antichrist, to challenge the authority of the beast. And they will meet, as we'll talk about next week, in that valley. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, we see the final, the seventh vial poured out. Let's begin in verse 15. Pick back up where we left off. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Harmageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there were great earthquakes such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And see the description of this earthquake. And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague was thereof was exceeding great. The seventh vials poured out a cry which says it is done, an earthquake of tremendous consequence upon the earth. And the Scriptures say the great city in verse 19, that would be Jerusalem, is split in thirds. The earthquake literally moves the ground and splits this city into three parts. Other cities of the world are completely leveled to the ground. Could you imagine entire cities falling to the ground because of the fierceness of this worldwide earthquake? But not only that, but the Scriptures... Um, state that the, the islands will flee away and the mountains were not found. This earthquake will cause the islands to literally just sink into the sea. Islands, of course, are a small sliver of land coming out from the sea, right? The earthquakes, these islands will just fall into the sea. The mountains will be leveled. They will just tumble before the wrath of God. And great hailstones will fall, gigantic hailstones that will fall and devastate the earth. And men, in characteristic fashion, do not repent, but rather they blaspheme the Lord. There's one more set of judgments that I want to talk about this evening. It's, it's, a, it's an evening of judgments because that's what the second three and a half years of the tribulation characterize. However, um, next week we will talk about that final judgment as well as the victory of Jesus Christ in His second coming. And what I'd like to talk about this evening, it's found in Revelation 17 and 18, and it's the judgment upon the beast and his empire in chapter 18, but prior to that, a judgment upon um, a religious institution. Both the empire and the religious institution are called in Scripture Babylon. I'm not going to take the time this evening to trace it. However, what we understand from Scripture is that the city of Babylon has a history of tremendous rebellion and apostasy. 
As a matter of fact, we can trace the history of Babylon all the way back to a man named Nimrod, who it would seem, not definitively stated in Scripture, but throughout much of, of Jewish tradition, was the man who was responsible for the building of the Tower of Babel, which was the beginning, the Scriptures tell us, of Babylon. Babylon has always been a place of spiritual apostasy. Babylon in Scripture is always a sign of spiritual apostasy, a spiritual unfaithfulness, defiance and rebellion against God. That is what Babylon pictures. We know that there was the physical city of Babylon, but we're talking about the spiritual representation and the political representation, what Babylon represents, which is unfaithfulness to God and spiritual apostasy. And so we're going to see judgment upon Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, chapter 17 upon spiritual Babylon, chapter 18 upon political Babylon. And in in Revelation 17 verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made, been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And what, God, what John sees in this vision, is, as Revelation 17 continues, is a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, that would be blasphemy against God, having seven heads and ten horns. This colored beast is no doubt the same beast that Daniel saw, but he couldn't describe. The political kingdom led by Antichrist, the the beast with seven heads and ten horns that we've seen already in the book of Revelation. And it's not the beast that he's focused upon here. It's the woman that is riding the beast. Revelation 17 verse 4 describes this woman as having tremendously lavish appearance. Gold, jewels, clothed in purple and in scarlet. And of course, we read in verse 1 her description as being the great whore. This is not a kind description. The ladies in this room would not appreciate being called by this description. And yet this is the description that is given to this, this institution that is pictured as a woman who is absolutely unfaithful. In her hand, the Scriptures tell us in verse 4, is a golden cup full of her filthiness and her abomination. It's, it's in a golden cup. It's, 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 full of, it, it, it's, it's got riches, it's got beauty, it's got everything the world could desire, but what it's filled with is abomination and filthiness. And chapter 5 tells us what was written on her forehead. The very character, the very definition of who she was is this. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abomination of the earth. That's a very, very unflattering description. This is the description of this institution. Notice verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Not the way we would think of admiration today as in we admire as much as wondering at 
the marvel of what this is. The angel also describes, as he continues through this chapter, seven kings, five of which are fallen at the time of the writing, one who was current and one who is yet to come for a short while, while the beast that John saw would be the eighth king. He's speaking about the kings over this empire. There are many speculations as to who these kings are. We'll see in just a moment that it's very likely that the Catholic Church is an important part of the harlot church, of this great false religious institution. And so many have assumed that these kings are popes. However, it doesn't hold historical water. There's been far more popes and people keep trying to work it out, trying to work out the, the, um, the relevance and those sorts of things. It's never quite worked out for anyone who's tried to identify who these kings are. So I'm not going to make a definitive attempt to identify who these kings are, the five that had already come, the one that was, the one that would come for a short time, and then the eighth king being Antichrist. And the problem is not necessarily, I don't have a problem if you want to identify who these kings are. The problem is not identifying who they are, but the problem is saying that because we've identified who they are, we know when the tribulation is going to happen. That was a big thing with Pope John Paul and now Pope Francis. Everyone says, okay, one was the seventh king, one was the eighth king. Uh, They said that of, of several popes in the past as well. And because we know this, that means this is the pope that's going to usher in the tribulation. He's going to be the, um, the great antichrist. And, and this keeps coming up. However, everyone keeps being wrong. So it's kind of silly. We don't need to do it. That's not what, that's not what, what is being uh, attempted here. Um, at some point, someone may find out, find out, someone may, may find the, what, what appears to be the definitive, yes, this is it. That's wonderful. We now know. But um, I don't know. See, the purpose of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is not so that we can pinpoint when these things will happen. And those that keep trying to pinpoint when these things will happen are in a fruitless endeavor. That's not why we read the book. We read this book, Revelation of Jesus Christ, so that we can know the character of God so that we can know the end of the just, so that we can know the end of the wicked, and so that we can gain an urgency in our mission knowing that if you don't reach the lost in this community, if, if Legacy Baptist Church doesn't reach the lost in this community, if we are not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the people that are not a part of the rapture, the people that do not accept Christ, the people that accept this mark of the beast, they're going to go through this, and some of them might be our relatives our friends. And so this is to give us an urgency to remind us that we don't want to be there, but we don't want anyone we know to be there either. We don't want anyone to be there. There will be people there, but we don't want them there. Now in verse 15, the horse said to sit upon the waters. Remember, the waters in this case likely being a prophetic metaphor for the description of all peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, as it's described in verse 15. The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this gives us the key to us understanding the waters when they're used in a prophetic or metaphorical sense. 
It is the unbelieving world. But notice with me verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. As God brings about the judgment upon this institution that is called the great whore or the great harlot, the mother of harlots, it will be the kings under Antichrist who will destroy this institution. They'll bear with her as long as it brings them into power, but at the end, once used this false religious system, they will destroy this false religious system with a vengeance. And this, the description of her destruction is very, very graphic. We'll come back to the great whore in our application this evening. But there's one other judgment, and that is upon... Antichrist and his empire as well. It's described as a second Babylon, this being political Babylon, not religious Babylon. And Revelation 18 describes this judgment. As this kingdom falls, the kings of the earth do not rejoice. The kings of the earth rejoice over the fall of the religious system. But they did not rejoice at the fall of of the economic and political system of Antichrist. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18 says this, The kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is come. All of the kingdom, all of its power, it will fall just like that. The power of man will fall into desolation. Verses 16 and 17 go on to say this. These, these merchants will say, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning saying, What city is like unto this great city? All of the power of Antichrist in his kingdom will fail. All of the riches of his kingdom will fail. The kingdom of the great blasphemer of God will go the way of every other kingdom that's ever been upon this earth. Go the way of Rome. Go the way of Napoleon's empire and Alexander's empire and the British empire and the United States empire. It, they're all going the same way. They will all fail. They will all fall. They will all be as nothing before the greatness of our God. And that is the time of judgment. I know it wasn't a very happy message. <laughs> um, it's not a very happy subject. But it's stuff that we need to know. That you need to know. What's coming. And I'd like us to apply this evening by turning our eyes and hearts back towards this wicked religious system that will bring the beast into power. This woman that's riding on the back of the beast. This false prophet is leading this religious system that will direct people towards worship of the beast 
instead of directing people toward the worship of God. And as to the identity of this whore of Babylon, um, this religious system that will kill the true saints of God, that will blaspheme God in its actions and intentions, that will ride the government and power of Antichrist to a place of tremendous material wealth and prosperity, these are the characteristics that we see of this harlot church. The harlot church will be a false church. It will claim spiritual connections, religious ideas, but it will be devoid of truth. As you think of these characteristics, think of today. What religious institutions mark this, these characteristics? False. The harlot church will be ecumenical. That means that it will be, accept, be accepting of diverse viewpoints and theologies. It will be a, a accepting of everyone type idea. It must please and it must pander to a world that hates and blasphemes God. Remember, the world is going to be hating and blaspheming God throughout this entire process. And yet throughout it all, the religious system is going to be there. Not compelling them to worship the God who's judging them, but rather compelling them to worship Antichrist and the beast. So it must accept every idea. It must be concerned greatly with material and physical riches. The harlot church will be rich and lavish. We saw the pictures of the jewels and the gold and the purple and the scarlet that she's clothed in. Lavishness, riches. And the harlot church will be based in Rome. We see that very clearly as well. That she will be from a city of seven hills. That being the characteristic. Um, chapter 17, verse 9. Let me show you. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. And it talks about the kings of those mountains. The city of seven hills is the name historically for the city of Rome. This is just one of, of many evidences that we see on top of the fact that Antichrist is called the prince of the people that would destroy the temple. Rome being the people that destroyed the temple in 70 AD. This is also characteristic of the fact that Rome is the final world empire and the great um, statue that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel with the head of gold. You get down to the feet. The iron, that's Rome. The beast with seven heads and ten horns, we know it's the empire of Rome. So not only will it be the empire, a re revived Roman empire, as we've talked about several times, the city of seven hills simply confirming what we've already learned, but also the actual city of Rome appears to be the place where the center of this power will be. Not just the empire, but the city itself. Now, just as God has always had the true church, the harlot church has always risen with it. Satan has had his false kingdom along God's true kingdom from the very beginning. And as you think of these characteristics, it is very difficult to get away from the fact that they all fit the Catholic church. And they have for almost the entire existence of the Catholic church. The Catholic Church has always been intent on riches and material wealth. 
Catholic Church has always been intent on power. The Catholic Church has revealed itself to be willing to shift to the whims of culture in order to stay relevant. The Catholic Church has been ecumenical when it's needed to. The Catholic Church has probably killed more Christians than anything else in the history of the world. Read about the Inquisition. The Inquisition saw thousands upon thousands of Christians killed throughout its years. The Catholic Church has always been an institution filled with corruption and a thirst for power. Now, I'm not saying that there are no such thing as believing Catholics. I'm not saying that everyone in the Catholic Church is a friend of Antichrist. Please don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is that the institution itself, the church with its figurehead, the Pope, its institution, its religion, its rituals are without a doubt going to be an instrumental part of the harlot church. There's really no way for us to get around the description here as we look at the Catholic Church. But I do not believe it's just going to be the Catholic Church as we think of it today. And the reason why is because what we see happening in the tenor of particularly Western Christianity. And we can just look toward Western Christianity as this is concerned because Antichrist and the false prophet will be dealing with the Western world empire. And so we can understand this from a Western viewpoint and be quite comfortable in it. So let me, inter- let me, let me remind you of a few things that have been happening uh, outside the realm of the Catholic Church. Glenn Beck. He's a Mormon. He's a New Age Mormon. And for the past several years now, he has been teaching and encouraging Mormons and Catholics and Evangelical Protestants and Christians to come together, to set aside their differences and to unify for the good of their common goals, typically political in end. He's been calling for these national days of prayer where he calls all people of all faiths to come together and to pray that our government would get on the right path, that we could bring our government back to some moral standing, dominion theology. And what we are seeing is an encouragement of tremendous ecumenicism where we lay aside the distinctives of our personal religious beliefs in order to unify around that which we do believe and to pray to the same God, as Glenn Beck calls it. The Mormons and the Catholics and the Evangelicals, we all pray to the same God. But Jesus Christ said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Mormons don't come to God the Father through Christ. Jehovah's Witness don't come to God the Father through Christ. And most Catholics don't come to God the Father through Christ. They go through Mary. They go through a saint. They revere these saints. It's false. Ecumenicism. In 2009, Glenn Beck sat atop Billy Graham's list of most admired people in the world. Billy Graham has been a well-known ecumenicist since the beginning of his crusades, hasn't he? Invite everybody. Bring the Catholics. Bring the Charismatics. Bring the Protestants. Bring the New Evangelicals. It doesn't matter. Bring them in. Let's worship together and pray to the same God. Now, I'm not saying everything Billy Graham has done is wrong, 
But what I'm saying is the, his ministry and Glenn Beck's ministry bear the fingerprints of what will come to be the one false religion of Antichrist. Rick Warren is a member of Tony Blair's Faith Foundation, a group advocating religious ecumenicism and tolerance. Rick Warren is also the founder of a coalition called the Peace Coalition, which attempts to bring Christians and Muslims together to promote global peace and freedom, to set aside our differences and to focus on that which is the same. This initiative has become to known much to uh, Rick Warren's displeasure as Chrislam, the merging of Christianity and Islam, taking the best of both worlds and merging them into one religion. Rick Warren, the fingerprints of this one world harlot religion are on his ministry. The New, Apostolic Re- um, the New Apostolic Reformation is a new group that is coming up seeking to renew the signs and the wonders and the prophets looking for those signs. It bears the mark of this ecumenical false one world religion. And as we see this happening in the world around us, as we see these men calling for us to set aside our distinctives and to merge into one world religion into a, a, a new age of tolerance and peace where we set aside our differences and work toward um, that which we can all stand for. Hybrid, hybridizing religions, taking new age mysticism, things like yoga and contemplative prayer and trying to merge them with Christianity and taking the, um, the styles of, of Islamic prayer and merging them into Christianity. And as we see these things happening, what you are seeing is the ecumenicism that will define the harlot church, the great whore of the last days. It will be a church that, that accepts everything and therefore stands for nothing. And when Antichrist takes power, this church will be more than happy to see him as their leader, as their God. And why? Because this church wants money. This church wants favor. And churches that are more interested in people and money and favor, and by people I mean attendance, not souls, attendance and money and favor and popularity and culture, churches that are more interested in that than they are with truth are churches that bear the marks of the harlot church of the last days. So as you go from here this evening, I encourage you to remember the doctrine of separation. The doctrine of separation states that we, as God's people, as God's church, separate ourselves from spiritual association with those who claim God's Word but walk contrary to it. This doesn't mean we reject them as people. This doesn't mean that we see ourselves as superior to them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says this, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The purpose of separation is not to erect walls against people. 
The purpose of separation is not to make people angry at us. It is spiritual purity. And as the true church rejects the teaching of these ones that claim spiritual authority, they will feel ashamed. And it will either cause them to repent or it will show them to be what they are, which is false prophets. And that is the purpose of separation. Whether a person is actually saved or not is not for us to judge. But if they claim to have a relationship with God, we now have the right and the duty and the responsibility to identify what they are saying, what they are teaching, the direction they are going, and either come alongside it because it it merges with the truth or to recognize it does not and to have no company with them spiritually. If a person is not walking in alignment with the teaching of God, we call them out and we separate our company from him. We don't sit under his teaching. We don't contribute to his ministry. We don't support his endeavors until he repents of his false teaching and his disobedience. And as we see what is and what is to come, we need to renew in our hearts a determination that we are not going to admit false teachers. We are not going to tolerate false teaching. That we are going to come out from among them. That we are going to separate ourselves from them. Not that we're going to hate them, but that we are not going to encourage others or involve ourselves in their ministries. Because they are working contrary to the truth. And this is, what the, this is the difference between evangelicalism and fundamentalism. I've had that question oftentimes. We're not an evangelical church. We're a fundamentalist church. People say, well, what's the main difference? Well, there's a lot of conservative evangelical churches that believe a lot of what we believe. They believe the fundamentals of the faith. The difference, however, is that a fundamentalist cares about the doctrine of separation in a very real way and is willing to identify error and to separate himself from error for the sake of spiritual purity. We need to be willing to do that this evening. We need to be sure that the circles of influence spiritually in our lives are such that we are not allowing ourselves to fall prey to the false teachings of the harlot church. That we are not allowing ourselves to drift toward the unfaithfulness that characterizes the whore of Babylon. Because it's constantly bombarding us. Ecumenicism. Compromise. Allow it in. Allow it to... You're, you're, you're just not being tolerant. You're just not willing to, to see other people's viewpoints. Well, if we believe this book is truth, then it's worth defending. And it's worth guarding for the next generation. Let's pray together.